from the dark web to your radio dial. You are listening to CyberTalk Radio on News 1200 WOAI. Welcome to CyberTalk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. You're here this week with Ray Sims from Decipher, and we're going to talk about PCI compliance and penetration testing and some of these things that uh, may be new for folks uh, and what's going on in the cybersecurity world in these areas uh, related to some of those topics. You can listen to past episodes of CyberTalk Radio or catch the replay of this one if you happen to miss some of it um, at www.cybertalkradio.com on the iTunes podcast service or Pocket Casts um, as well as a YouTube channel. So Ray, thank you for joining us this week. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. So share a little bit about your background uh, and uh, Decipher and uh, what's going on with your company here in San Antonio. Sure. Um, My background is I've been in uh, information security for as long as I can remember. I I started back doing programming, network administration, system administration, and found that security was really uh, the one place that combined all of those different things. You know, you have to have an understanding of all of those things to be good in cybersecurity. Uh, and so I've been doing that for uh, probably the last 20 years or so. Um, was with uh, Deloitte & Touche out in Los Angeles doing cybersecurity uh, here in town with UTSA for, for eight years, and then uh, now with uh, Decipher Technologies. Wonderful. Well, welcome to San Antonio. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's quite a change from L.A. Yes. I, we like it, though. We've... Uh, We've been here for a while, and uh, we've got family now. Uh, basically, everybody that was in California, we moved out here. So some in Houston and yeah. here in San Antonio. Yeah, my, my parents did the same thing. Um, I moved out here in 2004, and uh, my mom came to visit grandkids, mm-hmm. and she flew into San Antonio, and she landed, and she, and she looked over at my, my dad and said, this doesn't look like the John Wayne Western movies at all. Like there's trees everywhere. We've got the river walk here in downtown. We've got hills and all of this. And uh, yeah, my my dad had never told her what Texas looked like. So they went back to California, sold their house, and uh, moved this way uh, back in uh, 2005 or 2006. It only took them a couple of years to to head this direction. So you were saying uh, Decipher here in town as well. And uh, there's a ton of cybersecurity companies all over. Um, I think our listeners are learning more about those companies each week. But uh, what do y'all do, and uh, like how many folks are here working for you in San Antonio? Sure. So uh, Decipher, we've got uh, 300 employees uh, worldwide. So we have people here in the U.S., here in San Antonio, as well as abroad. Uh, we have about half of those folks here in San Antonio. Uh, we do a majority of uh, majority of our work is in uh, the government side of things, uh, where we do healthcare and IT and healthcare IT type uh, type work. Uh, and then we have a commercial side of our business that does the cybersecurity piece, uh, consulting, uh, PCI compliance, HIPAA compliance, uh, pretty much the whole kind of gamut of cybersecurity services for medium to large businesses. Okay. So you, you said you said PCI compliance. I said it during the intro. Uh, so I want to go ahead and uh, give a little background uh, from your view, like as you're here talking to our, our listeners on what is PCI compliance? What does it stand for? Um, let's just, we'll go to try to lay the foundation uh, to ensure that we're talking a common language as we work our way from intro here into more advanced throughout the hour. Sure. Um, the payment card industry, uh, I guess now we're talking 10 years back, uh, determined that credit card numbers and cardholder data 
was, uh, was important information that they needed to have some sort of rules for how to keep that information safe. Uh, and so they came up with the Payment Card Industry Data Security Standard, PCI DSS, um, which is a series of requirements that any merchant that accepts credit cards has to adhere to. Um, and those requirements uh, kind of range the gamut from everything in cybersecurity from policy to penetration testing and vulnerability scanning. All of those pieces are part of what are required from every merchant uh, that accepts credit cards. So, and uh, for listeners out there, we've, we've talked a little bit about uh, prescriptive versus descriptive standards before. So the, uh, the PCI one is, is one of those that's very prescriptive. It's got a bulleted numbered list of here's the things that you should do to keep these things safe and you're gonna have an auditor that's gonna go check that you're doing all these things versus some others are more descriptive where they say you have a duty of care. You should make sure that these things are reasonably protected. PCI comes right as uh, Ray was saying and you're gonna get vulnerability scans. You're going to have a penetration test. You're going to do a specific set of technical things to try to protect cardholder data. Right, and, and part of the problem that we've had with, with some of these standards that are more prescriptive in nature is that they don't tend to fit all organizations. And so PCI has taken the approach of having um, kind of these self-assessment questionnaires uh, that you fill out, and then based on your answers to these types of questions, they let you know which specific requirements apply to you. So they've kind of taken that descriptive approach and that prescriptive approach and, and combined them together. And something that's actually, I mean, not bad. Yeah, no, I, I think this is what we see often if because the PCI standard is one, this is a private industry regulation. This was not a law. Correct. There's no law that says you have to follow PCI. There's uh, laws from the, the FTC or the Consumer Protection Bureau that says like we should be doing things with personally identifiable information of, of our customers. But the, the PCI requirements are not a law. Now, if you'd like to accept credit cards, you need right. to follow them or Visa, MasterCard, and the other card networks will... Uh, remove your ability to process the transactions with their card type because they want to keep their customers safe. Right, and you know the the liability has been so, thus far on the on the uh, merchants, right, and uh, on the banks. I mean, so that when credit card numbers get stolen and people charge up stuff, the individual customer is not responsible. The individual business that got targeted isn't necessarily responsible, but the banks have to put that money back into accounts, and they're the ones that are ultimately on the on the on the hook for this. And so. Uh, they said, hey, if you want to accept credit cards and you want us as an acquiring bank, then you know what? You're going to have to abide by these standards. Yeah. So for, for the listeners out there that own a business, acquiring banks a pretty common term. But what do you mean by that for all of the folks that don't own a, a business out there? Um, so the bank that, uh, that you use to process your payments, right? So um, you have a, you know, whether that's Square, whether that's... Um, Frost Bank, whatever bank you use to, to, to run your payments, that's your acquiring bank. And they're the ones that are going to have the, the regulation. Yeah, so that's a, a private contract between the company and their, their credit card processing bank because you don't process cards directly with Visa as a merchant. Correct. You go through this acquiring bank as an intermediary. Exactly. Uh, and you said this PCI standard's been around for about a, a decade now. Yeah, about a decade now. We're on version 3. Um, that's the, the newest version that uh, the people ought to be uh, moving towards. And the, the standard evolves with time, right? So, for example, um, the, the types of encryption that you're allowed to use for uh, encrypted web traffic, SSL and HTTPS, right? Those types of things change and evolve with each of the different standards. So I, I use MD2, right? <laughs> exactly. MD2, 
uh, and uh, you know, Rot 13. That's those are our, you know, those are, those are the key ones. No, <laughs> if you're listening ones. out there and you ask your technical team um, if they're using MD2 or even MD5, they should say no. Right. Uh, those are not ways you should encrypt web traffic these days. Uh, it's not ways you should um, encrypt lots of things. It might be a way to do a checksum on a file to see if the file's been corrupted, but uh, even in those cases, if tampered with an MD5, is probably not a way to check for file tampering. You could check for corruption, but you would right. not be able to check for tampering. Right. I mean, if you're if you're if you care, right, we should be moving to uh, SHA-256 um, and AES-256 using elliptic curve. Uh, for all of our encryption needs. In PCI, you, you had mentioned that there's a few different sections. So there's policy requirements. So mm -hmm. some of these things are, are technical, but there's other things that people have to do that are not technical. So if, if I own a, a business, um, maybe I've read the self-assessment questionnaire, maybe I've actually filled out the thing, but if I'm a merchant that does less than a million dollars a year of credit cards, um, I'll say that my experience, the compliance really where people are really taking PCI seriously at sub a million dollars of credit card processing is pretty low. So we may educate our, our listeners here a little bit of like what things um, could they be doing just from a non-technical fancy security stuff to keep credit card data safe. Sure. I mean, one of the first things is understanding the, the flow of credit card data for your organization, right? And that's going to be the, the biggest thing, the biggest determinant into what your requirements are going to be. So if your flow is you swipe a card on an iPad and it goes to Square, most of that credit card data you're not going to have to be responsible for, right? Because you're not actually storing the credit card information anywhere. You're not really transmitting it. It's all encrypted and it's all going to a third party. And so that's why in the sub-million dollar people, um, they think that they don't have to do anything, right? Because a lot of the times that data, that card data isn't actually stored on their machines. However, there are a large number of point-of-sale systems and, and those types of technologies where the credit card numbers are stored on the computer. Um, and if they are stored on the computer, then you have a much, much greater uh, exposure factor and a, a greater number of, uh, of requirements that you have to deal with. So good question to ask your point-of-sale vendor if you run point-of-sale retail is, does my point-of-sale system that you provided me store the credit card data? Correct. If the answer is yes, your life just got more complicated, call Ray. <laughs> a lot more complicated. Uh, if if it doesn't, and it shouldn't, you should be using what's called a payment gateway, Correct. effectively, like Square. And same thing if you've got an a e-commerce version of your, your retail store now. Even restaurants are getting this days where you can do online ordering from mm -hmm. them. Um, you should be using a payment gateway. You should not store credit cards unless you have already talked to somebody like Ray and you really have a whole lot of things in place. Yeah, and even when using a payment gateway, understanding how that data gets processed by that payment gateway. So um, there's a difference in the requirements for when your website redirects to like PayPal or some other gateway like that versus when you have a form and then that form goes to the, to the gateway, right? You have different requirements based on that. So really what businesses need to do is they just really need to understand what is the flow of that credit card data and how does that data move? Um, and then the other piece is... What do we do about the, I don't want to say the one-offs, but the manual pieces, right? I mean, there are businesses that still take a credit card over the telephone, right, that'll write things down and, and those types of things. And those, that, that credit card data still needs to be protected, even in written form, right? And PCI uh, covers that as well. Yeah. 
So you're listening to 1200 WAI. This is Cyber Talk Radio. I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here with Ray Sims this week, and we're going through PCI compliance on uh, how you keep credit cards safe in a business. And as a consumer, maybe some of the things that you can ask or think about or look around when you're uh, shopping with folks um, to see if they're keeping your information safe when you do business with them. So uh, Ray was uh, just going through uh, people scribbling credit card numbers down on a piece of paper. So if you, you are doing that inside your business, and there's a lot of folks out there that do, uh, th- do you have a shredder in your office? Please shred those. That's what PCI would say you do, and you need to shred it in a reasonable and timely manner. Like, don't leave it, have a list of credit cards sitting on a desk when you may have a cleaning crew or somebody that comes in overnight that's uh, not really in scope for your audit, not really thinking through you. You're making your own life more complicated the longer that information sits around. Yeah, and we and you know faxes fall in that in that category as well. We have a number of organizations that we work with that accept orders via fax and send that stuff, and those faxes get translated to emails, and then those emails get sent across servers, and that flow of data then becomes very, very complicated, and it's something that we don't think about because we don't think about hackers breaking into fax machines, right? Um, But once you start connecting those up to the Internet and you start pushing that data around to all these different systems, it becomes much more complicated. Yeah, I mean, there's a a number of uh, the the folks in the the nonprofit sector get hit up pretty hard on some of this stuff because they they all are – um, take paper donation forms on the bottom mm-hmm. of that paper donation form. There's a little piece of some perforated edge that says cut on this line. And then below that, you write your name and your credit card number and your address and all that stuff on there. And then ideally with your membership, they cut that piece off and then it goes and gets shredded in the, a can after they've got you into their computer system where that stuff should be stored safely. Uh, but if you're out there and you're in one of those worlds and you know that, hey, man, we've got all that stuff sitting in one of our file cabinets, um, please get that into <laughs> some uh, PCI compliant safe store and then uh, sh- shred those paper copies because it's a, a risk uh, sitting out there. And that's why these uh, type of things get put into place. Yeah. And, and I can, you know, I can assure you that it's, it's better to take a look at it now and do something about it now than to wait. Uh, we do incident response as well as PCI compliance, and our PCI compliance is much cheaper than <laughs> the incident response and uh, a lot less stressful. Yeah, we, we had a, an a, a incident response expert on. We went through a, a number of scenarios there. If you want to learn more about incident response, uh, look us up at www.cybertalkradio.com and uh, check some of the, the past episodes there. But, yeah, the uh, having a highly talented um, person available on effectively the bat phone because when you have an incident, you need people now. Um, yeah, it's like the difference of uh, scheduling an appointment with your doctor or showing up in the ER and needing heart surgery. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, on the, uh, the the policy side of things, are there a few other kind of tips and tricks or things that folks uh, should be thinking about on keeping that credit card data safe? Um, from a policy perspective, uh, knowing what you're going to do, um, like you said, in the event of an emergency, knowing who you're going to contact, um, and then having not just an incident response plan, but a disaster recovery plan that takes security into consideration. So when the computers go down, right, when your internet connection goes down, you're going to fall back to some way of processing credit cards, some way of of doing those transactions, and understanding what your risk exposure for that uh, as well is is important. Um, And then finally making sure that your people are trained and aware of what they're doing. Um, You know, a lot of people at the cash register they don't they're not cybersecurity experts right and so they don't understand all the processes and pieces that are put in place why they're put in place and what they help protect um, and so you know one of one of my favorite is the um, the four bit 
when they ask you for the four digits at the end of, uh, at the end of your card number, right? So, so the purpose of that is that we had attackers that were taking credit cards that they already owned and changing what was on the magnetic stripe, right? So instead of their credit card being on the magnetic stripe, it was your credit card number. Um, and so if you swipe the card and they asked to see the card, the card would have their little picture on it, it would have their name on it, and so everything looked like it was okay, but realistically what was on that magnetic stripe did not match what was on the front of the card. And so as a way around that, Right, we asked the, the cashier to look at the credit card and type in the last four digits on that credit card. Right? And that's supposed to match those last four digits on the credit card to what's on the magnetic stripe. That only works if the person asks to see the card and physically types in the numbers that they see. If they just ask the person, what are the last four digits on the card, the person's going to tell you the last four digits on the fake card, because that's what you're going to type in, and everything's going to come up okay, right? Yeah. Um, and so training our people at the registers, training the people that take this credit card information on how they're supposed to protect it is, is very important. Yeah. Yeah, and they, they get that fake credit card information via things called a skimmer very often. If you uh, have never heard about a skimmer, you haven't seen those on the news, they, the gas station guys get lit up on this all the time, uh, go ahead and go out to Google or Bing or your favorite search engine like DuckDuckGo if you're a little privacy conscious and uh, look for a credit card skimmer there and you can read quite a bit about those on the internet and how people get the, the fake credit cards and the magnetic stripe. Um, that's what led to these new pin and chip things that I think mm -hmm. has probably frustrated most of the consumers out there on how slow it processes. Oh, I and, hate them. And, yeah, and, and why does this store take them but the other one doesn't and all the rest of that? Yeah, we're going to this pin and chip uh, method because it's harder to skim mm -hmm. and harder to clone. I won't say it's going to ever be uh, skim and clone proof, but... Um, the, the hackers out there are pretty creative, and they, they may figure out ways to uh, circumvent that one, and we'll be on to the next thing here in some, some number of years. Um, it, so you're going through the training there. Uh, you also, as you talked, uh, made me think about something else to ask. So when you asked your point-of-sale vendor, does my point-of-sale store cards, and they told you, no, it doesn't store cards, ask them what it does when your Internet connection is down, what it does when the phone line's down. Because almost all of the point-of-sale systems will temporarily store cards, allow you to process them. You hope the person's got room on their card when you're doing this. But then it will, as soon as your Internet's back on or the phone line's back up, it will batch and run all those cards out and run them through the system at that point in time. It stored all that cardholder information temporarily, and that still um, expands your audit scope. So uh, you should ask your point-of-sale vendor a second question. When they tell you yes the first time, um, ask what it does when it's offline. Yeah, and ask them if you can see a copy of the report of compliance, um, a copy of, uh, of what their PC, what their quality security assessor uh, looked at and determined for their environment and for what they, what the service that they offer. Yeah, yeah. So you just uh, the security assessor that they call those in the PCI world the QSA, and then that report of compliance that Ray mentioned, uh, they'll call that the Rock. If you hear people talking about these uh, things in their acronym security terms. Yeah, rocks and socks and yes. QSAs and ASVs. It's all, it's acronym soup. Yes. Um, so how about an a ASV? What is, what's that one? Because that's what you all do, correct? Yeah, so that's what we do. So an ASV is an approved scanning vendor. So one of the requirements of PCI is that on a quarterly basis, you have your systems externally scanned for vulnerabilities, right? So every quarter, there should be someone just running a basic vulnerability scan against your systems to make sure that you're not doing anything um, naive. Yes. <laughs> that, that you know all your configurations are the way that they're supposed to be. 
Um, and so this has to be performed by an approved scanning vendor. So PCI has a program that ASVs have to go through that include training, um, insurance requirements, as well as technical pieces where uh, PCI gives, you, gives us as an ASV an infrastructure. And so we have to scan that infrastructure, find all the vulnerabilities in that infrastructure, and then write reports on that um, and send those to PCI for evaluation, right? So it's, a, it's actually a pretty intensive uh, process for an organization to go through to get that ASV certification. Um, and, and the ASV's job is to really help you understand what the risks are in your infrastructure and help you to identify what you're doing about those risks. So you go through, and on the scanning, um, we need to scan the website. And you can't just scan your www website because that may not be the site where it's actually accepting your credit card. So um, some folks may have gone online. You may have a scanning tool. You may think you're scanning the stuff you need, but you're actually only scanning step one of your infrastructure. You're not scanning the full thing. Um, this is, is one where if you're above that million dollar, especially if you're above the $5 million cutoff, mm -hmm. make sure you're actually having a conversation with your ASV to make sure you're scanning all of your infrastructure um, because you, you get into this point where you thought you were scanning everything, you thought you were secure and safe, you actually missed something critical to the environment, um, and because you missed that critical thing, you end up with a PCI-related data breach, which um, can be pretty expensive aside even just from the not um, being able to take credit cards, which is right. catastrophic to businesses. If, if um, you get ruled grossly negligent by the merchant bank, they may no longer allow you to accept credit cards. Correct. Um, yeah, and, and that, that cardholder data environment, the CDE, right? We have these all, all these acronyms, right? So the cardholder data environment, that's the thing that's supposed to be scanned. And that can include your external e-commerce site, if you have an e-commerce site. It can include your retail stores, if you have retail stores. All of those things, um, where the credit card data flows, again, when we talked about those data flows, wherever that credit card goes, that's the infrastructure that needs to be scanned. So as an ASV, we ask those questions, right? So we, you know, you tell us, oh, this is the only place that we have credit card information. Well, we're going to go out and we're going to try and find other places where you might have credit card information and ask you about it. So, hey, we saw these other sites that look like they're part of your infrastructure. Are you sure that you don't store credit cards here, right? And so that process, that's something that you work with your ASV on um, to make sure that you're getting the right uh, scoping for this because you don't want to scan and think everything's okay and you've got this one you know Windows XP system that you forgot about that's not behind a firewall that's taking credit cards right yeah yeah the the one where uh, we take credit cards via the phone orders and they happen to get keyed on on a Windows XP XP machine mm -hmm. that's not uh, safe and patched and secure yeah right exactly it's always that one off in the corner somewhere yeah, um, we, we do penetration testing as well, and, and that's our approach for penetration testing. We're, we're looking for the system that everybody forgot about, um, that nobody remembers is there. We put it up one time to test this one piece of software, and the guy that did it left, and no one knows why it's there, and no one wants to turn it off because they might break something. You know, that's the system we're after. Yeah. So we're uh, nearing our bottom-of-the-hour break. Um, we've been covering PCI compliance here on CyberTalk Radio with Ray Sims. And uh, after the bottom-of-the-hour break, we're going to dive a little more deep. The uh, second half of the hour, if you uh, are new to the program, we usually go a little bit more technical. 
Um, so we'll get a little bit nerdy into penetration testing, maybe walk through a scenario, an example. Um, we can tell some stories about that, so we may get a little geeky, but we may also then do some nice storytelling. So if you um, like watching Mr. Robot on television, you may like the uh, segment <laughs> after we come back, um, after the bottom of the hour break. Uh, you can learn more about CyberTalk Radio at www.cybertalkradio.com. Uh, we're on Facebook. We're on Twitter. Uh, we also happen to be on YouTube. If you uh, like to listen to past episodes there or iTunes podcast service, as well as Pocket Cast for uh, the folks out there on Android. Welcome back to Cyber Talk Radio. Uh, for those of you just joining us, I'm your host, Brett Pyatt, a 20-year internet security veteran. I'm here with Ray Sims uh, from Decipher, a uh, local uh, San Antonio-based, uh, for at least half their folks, a uh, cyber security company. They do uh, things in both the private sector and the public sector. We get a lot of those uh, around here with um, all of the cyber command things going on. Um, with our 24th and 25th and uh, maybe some of the non-Air Force related cyber things as well. There's um, a lot of interesting things going on in San Antonio related to cybersecurity. If you want to learn more about uh, CyberTalk Radio, uh, you can go to www.cybertalkradio.com or look us up on Facebook or Twitter. Uh, so before the uh, bottom of the hour break, we went through uh, all things about PCI compliance. This is a payment card industry compliance uh, for people that have to accept credit cards, some want to accept credit cards in their business. They need to be doing things on that cybersecurity side to keep your cardholder data safe as a uh, customer. Uh, here in this segment, we're going to uh, dive in deep to one of the uh, aspects of PCI, which is uh, penetration testing. So if you're a, a merchant um, taking um, and holding cardholder data and you do a, a good amount of transactions, um, you need to be getting a penetration test on a regular basis. So uh, Ray, uh, welcome back again to the, the program. And uh, let's go ahead and give uh, folks a kind of a high level overview on what is a penetration test. Uh, sure. And if, and if I could say just, uh, just to go through the requirement just a little bit. Um, so PCI requires a uh, a bunch of different things that, that we offer, and I'll talk about what, what those are, but um, specifically is a vulnerability scan, an external vulnerability scan on a quarterly basis, um, and then they want you to do an internal vulnerability scan uh, on any time something in your infrastructure changes, right? And so that doesn't have to be performed by an ASV. That can be done by your in-house internal IT staff, uh, but quarterly needs to be done by an approved scanning vendor. In addition to that, once a year, um, they ask you to do a penetration test if you meet the threshold, right? Um, yeah. And that penetration test is supposed to be on the entire cardholder data environment. So that penetration test is supposed to include um, a network diagram that shows everything in your network, a network diagram that shows the cardholder data environment, as well as the flow of credit card data through that environment, 
Um, that includes all the workstations, all the servers, every piece of your environment should be included as part of that penetration test. Yeah, so that, that penetration test itself, this is, uh, I guess, what they call ethical hacking? Um, yeah, I think there, there are certainly ethics that come into it. Yes. Um, it is, uh, yeah, it is, I mean, the goal of the penetration test is not, it's, it's not a, it's not an experiment to see if your pen testers can get in, right? It's supposed to help increase the security of your organization, right? It's supposed to help you determine what are the weakest points in your infrastructure and how can an attacker string together those weak points in your organization to get access to that. And the goal is after that, you're going to go fix those weak points, right? That this isn't just, you know, um, I know you're familiar with UTSA and their collegiate cyber defense competition, right? Where it's basically you're trying to defend against some hackers and the, the goal is the hackers want to get in and mess around with you, right? That's not the same thing as what we do in a penetration test, right? Um, it's much more serious and it's more about increasing the security posture of the organization. Yeah, because the, uh, the hard part is when you're playing defense on computing infrastructure, you have to protect against everything. And the hacker only has to find one way in. So this is the same thing like if you think about a burglar trying to break into your house. And you've got a, a door made out of metal. You've got a deadbolt on that door. It's locked. It's safe. They're probably not going through that door. But you've got windows. So this is like where you'll see like maybe some places, instead of having just glass windows on the lower floor, they've got bars on those glass windows on the lower floor. But they might not on the upper floor. So if I was a burglar and I'm going through that analogy for a pen test here and I brought a ladder, I could climb in the second. I can still break a window in the second story and get into your building. So the, the penetration tester is going to go first knock on the door. They're going to go to the window, and then maybe they find a way in because they had to bring a ladder. So the, those pen testers may have certain levels of tools, um, and they'll have to keep ratcheting that up until they can get in, or maybe they find out that they don't in your environment, and there's not a, a point that is uh, a weak uh, to the spot where the, the testers can go ahead and uh, get on in. So, Right, and, and for us, you know, the, the weakest spot is normally the employees, right? It's normally the phishing, those types of attacks. And, uh, you know, to, to, to continue with your analogy, um, our house was broken into uh, when I lived in, in Los Angeles uh, twice. Uh, and both times it was my children, right, my users. Um, <laughs> they would forget their house key or, or whatever. Um, and they're the ones that are like, pulling window screens off and trying to get in through the window and turning off the alarm, and then they don't put that back. <laughs> and then the next day, you know, someone walks by and says, oh, an open window, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get in through that, right? And so that's what we see now, I mean, in, in penetration testing, right, is it's the users, it's the, it's the admin that needed to open up a hole in the firewall so he could fix some problem and never close that hole again, you know, that type of stuff. Yeah, so it, it maybe uh, make for some fun radio here, so uh, I'm going to pretend to be Ray's computer responding back to him. And uh, we're going to have him go ahead and try to pen test uh, an environment. So uh, say you've, you've just been hired. You're uh, going to go ahead and uh, you're going to work on a, a penetration test. Let's say this is a, a regional restaurant chain. So say they've got five restaurant locations uh, and they've got a, a website where they you can do ordering for food at any of the restaurants or banquet and catering. So they've got some different online ordering and they've got five restaurant locations here in town. And then they've got a, a corporate office that they kind of manage all those restaurants out of. Okay. Um, the first thing we're going to do is we're going to uh, try and fingerprint the network. So um, we're going to figure out DNS, all the things that they own, right? Um, yeah. So one of our, you know, one of our techniques is 
we'll look up, um, let's say that they own restaurant.com, right? We'll, we'll look up whatever that restaurant is and see who owns that domain, right? And then we'll go and see what other domains that are registered to that same user, to that same email address, to that same address, right? Because that's going to give us maybe some related domains. Maybe they've got um, an API somewhere that they have on a .io domain or something like that that they have registered that nobody's really paying any attention to. So yeah. that's probably going to be our first step. Yeah, so that, that DNS lookup is, uh, to use another analogy, it's kind of the phone book of the Internet, and there's certain things you have to publish publicly in order for computers to communicate, for people to be able to do that online ordering. So this is stuff that you can't hide. This is information that has to be out there in the open. Um, some of it does. Some things you can have what we call information leakage, where you're publishing things you don't have to publish. But So let's uh, go in through that example. So let's say you, you went um, through and you, you found um, a .io domain uh, that they had that was um, specialcatering.io. <laughs> so we had restaurant.com and we saw that registered at the same um, physical address is specialcatering.io. Okay, so we're going to, well, I mean, in a, in a real engagement, we would stop and say, hey, uh, we're going to add this to the scope of our testing. So uh, let's just make sure you guys actually own this. Um, and then we're going to go and, and add that to our scope and we're going we're gonna to do a network scan. All right, so we're going to see what services are open and running on those environments. Yeah. Uh, so typically we see, you know, VPN, we'll see web activity, um, probably over port 80 and port 443. Um, we generally, for the types of organizations that, that should be doing penetration tests, they're generally pretty good about having that external piece kind of, you know, walled off. Because they should be running quarterly scans. Right. Yes. Um, you know, a penetration test isn't the first thing you're going to do for your security. Like, hey, we got everything up. All right, let's have a penetration test. Um, because it's just going to be it's going to be a, a massacre. Yeah. Um, so on specialcatering.io, uh, there's a web server there listening, running a web app on, on both 80 and 443. Okay. So the first thing uh, we do... In, in that situation is we're actually going to go to the web app and look at it. Um, a lot of times the simple stuff gets overlooked. So when we go to the web app, we want to make sure that there's authentication going on in the web app and that that authentication is not going over clear text. Um, because if it is, that gives us some, some other possibilities of things that, that we can do, right? Um, and then we're going to, um, if it allows us to register for an account, we're going to register for an account and we're going to scan every single web page uh, on that website. We're going to look at every single input variable, uh, every single cookie, every single HTTP header, um, all of that for that application. And what we're looking for is we're looking for any sort of any sort of user input that they send back to us that could represent cross-site scripting. We're looking for cross-site request forgeries. Uh, we're looking for um, user accounts that can do privilege escalation. So they're not supposed to have access to this thing, but nobody actually checked that they don't have access to it, and, and they do. Uh, and so those are the types of things we'd be looking for at, at the application level. So going in, uh, so, so special catering, looking at the website, it, it says that this is, uh, if you're um, an event manager, you can sign up for an account here, and this is a way to get a catering account set up with our restaurant group so that you can do large banquet orders. So. Uh, this is instead it's a little bit more complicated version of the kind of regular individual order processing you would do here you can you've got input forms where you can schedule uh, dates and times and um, all sorts of, of things that you you now in here you can go create and request an order okay 
And so we're going to go through that entire process, right? We're going to go request an order. We're going to see um, if we can look at orders that other people have placed. Um, so we, if I can relay an experience, we had, we had a customer um, that had a website and their problem was that you could go in, you could order stuff, um, but they hadn't done a good job of segmenting their users from each other. So once I had a user account, I could go in and I could look at any other user account's data. I could put things in their shopping cart, I could take things out, I could um, change their billing and shipping addresses, all, all that just from fiddling with the bits that go along with the, with the request. Um, yeah. So it, you're you're going in and um, and this I think where Ray's talking through there is um, if your application is trusting anything on the client, you can't trust the client code. You can trust the server code, uh, but you have to input validate all of the things coming from the client. Uh, his there like you download and JavaScript is this uh, thing that it client side code and lots of the processing runs on on Ray's device and not necessarily on that server. So um, let's say in there as you're, you're going through and you, you look at this, you've got a, a cookie that has a, an order ID in it. Um, and, and this cookie's got an, an order ID. Um, as Ray was saying in the last example, he might try to make the order ID one lower than the order he just created to see if he can get the server to send him whoever made the previous order to him. Yeah, and, and this is a, it's a complex topic, right? When you say don't trust user input, right? Um, don't trust anything that comes from the client. A whole lot of data comes from the client. And things that you wouldn't expect for a user to be able to change, it's something that an attacker is going to change. Yeah. Um, and so you may have uh, an order input number that's in, that's in a Git request or in a parameter that you use in one place. Um, but you also store that in a cookie that gets sent um, you know, encrypted in some other spot. But we're able to make changes to that. Um, to that data that a normal user wouldn't be able to make changes to. And so I think that it's, you know, when we're, when we're talking about fixing the problems, right, and we're talking about talking with developers and we say, hey, don't trust user input, that's, it's an easy thing for us as security professionals to say because it makes sense. Hey, that came from the user. You can't trust it. But to understand that from a programming perspective, you have to understand where every single piece of data that ends up in your program, where that came from. Right? Did that come from a header? Did that come from a cookie? Was that has that previously been validated before I get it in the part that I'm working on? Right, um, but yeah, so that's what we're looking at. I mean, we're looking at how much validation is going on on the data. Are we are we sure that you know that's supposed to be a number? If I put a string in there, what happens? Right. Yeah. Um, and we've seen you know we see that over and over again. Yeah. So going through, uh, and we won't give all, all the uh, magic hacking tips over the uh, the air here, but the uh, all the stuff we're talking about, these are things that are not unique knowledge for Ray or just for a small penetration testing community. This is knowledge out there in the hands of all the bad guys as well, um, and at much more of a detailed level than we're going through here. Um, so uh, this is one where uh, you you can't rely on um, attackers not knowing these things to go look for the same way a, a trained security professional is going to go look for them. The, the hackers do a pretty good job of training themselves uh, just to then use that knowledge for uh, evil instead of for good. Um, so say as you're going through and you've done some more um, web application testing and you, you find a way to uh, create files on the web server. So you can send a request in, you can create a file on the web server, and then that file uh, will display back to you as a, a web page. So now you, you have um, 
shell access effectively to the server sure. through a playback on on the the site. So uh, now that you're you're on that system, what are some of the things you're going to to start doing to investigate to try to get to the to the next layer? Yeah, I mean, so once we have once we have that foothold in, into the server, um, you know, if it's if it's via file access, I mean, there's certain things where we get to that point and um, we can say it's an exercise for the reader because the next steps are so well known, they're so um, straightforward. Uh, but in this particular case, right, if we had file level access and we can basically, once you have file level access, you have remote code execution. Um, it's, you know, two step process to, to get to that. And once you have remote code execution, you now have access to that machine. Um, once we have access to the machine, what we're looking at is expanding footprints, right? So we're looking at what other machines are that is that machine connected to? Are there any trust relationships? If it's on the same network, are there any layer two types of attacks that we can run against this network, right? Tra tunnel all the traffic through, through us so that we can look at it, take it apart. Um, at, at that point, it's it, I mean, it's essentially game over, right? I mean, once you have that foothold, you are you're going to have a user account and you're going to look to escalate privileges of that user account to an administrator account. Um, once you have an administrator account on one box, you're going to look at how do you get that administrator level access on the next box and on and on and on until you get to the data that you're after. So typically we'll have a um, either a flag or a specific type of data that we're after on a pen test. So it may be credit card numbers, it may be PII, it may be uh, health information, whatever um, that particular organization wants us to, to get after. Um, but usually, a, a lot of these things are limited in time and scope, right? Um, and so, you know, we may have access to the entire system, be able to create 40 users and get all the data that we're after, but that doesn't mean that that's it, right? I mean, there's still more that can be done with more time, with more energy. Um, and a lot of our pen tests, we're not trying to be stealthy, right? We're yeah. not trying to evade detection. The point is, if you can detect us and stop us, that's a good sign, right? Um, most of the time, we don't have to worry about that, though. Um, yeah. So you're listening to Cyber Talk Radio on 1200 WAI. We're walking through a uh, kind of hypothetical penetration testing scenario, talking a little bit about what goes on during the process. Uh, before the break today, we uh, went through uh, PCI compliance for taking credit cards. Uh, you'll be able to uh, listen to the replay of this program uh, on Tuesday here uh, this coming week. Uh, it will be available. You can uh, look at www.cybertalkradio.com. Go to iTunes to pick it up on a podcast or Pocket Cast as well. Um, you can check us out on Facebook or Twitter uh, where you can learn more about this episode and uh, past episodes of the program uh, as well as what we have on the calendar going into the future. So uh, Ray and I were talking through, we've kind of gotten to file level access and from there he worked his way up to admin level access because uh, as you're trying to patch a system remotely, it's pretty easy to keep it patched asterisk that a little bit against folks being able to get in. Once you have user level access on the system, there's hundreds of programs on there, um, things that are installed as a default part of the operating system um, that uh, may have unknown, unpublished uh, vulnerabilities in them. Um, and so there's not even a patch available from the vendor and motivated attackers as well as um, a lot of the penetration testing teams uh, will have um, tools that they can use to escalate privileges. Um, the most of the penetration testing teams um, should be turning over all of their uh, 
quote zero day exploits to the vendors. Um, some do, some don't. Um, hopefully Ray's team does because uh, they're on the good guy side. But um, depending on how some of those are discovered, some clients won't actually allow you to turn them over. So this is where like teams end up having them because their client has not allowed it to be disclosed because um, it was uncovered during a pen test. And for whatever reason, that client may not be able to patch for some period of time. So the client doesn't even want it turned over to the vendor because they're concerned about their security posture. Yeah, and typically in those types of situations, we don't use that um, vulnerability for other clients. So that would be, you know, unless they find it independently in another client, we're not going to share that information with the other folks on our team. Um, just because if we, you know, if that client wants it to disclose, we can't use a vulnerability that one client doesn't want us to disclose to anybody else. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, and we have a lot of different ways of getting in. You know, our last ditch effort, you know, if everything has failed, we're going to Trojan a binary that we know an admin's going to run, right? Um, and that works like 80% of the time. Yeah. Um, as long as you can get past AV, then you Trojan that binary, the admin runs it, and there you go. And from there, if it's a Windows box, you Mimi cats, and hey, Bob's your uncle, right? Yeah, and this is uh, all in on the uh, remote technical penetration testing side of things. This uh, doesn't include, we covered um, on another program, uh, what a drop test is and what some mm -hmm. of the kind of sort of physical ways to compromise users, compromise buildings, uh, to, to get people to execute and run things on their computers that they shouldn't be running. Um, you can listen to that, look up a drop test in our archives and uh, learn more about uh, what those are. But yeah, so you said, I mean, going into the admin to get the admin to run a binary, this is a, a phishing attack um, is what these are kind of commonly called. Or if you're going specifically after an admin, folks may call this like kind of the term spear phishing. Um, but it also may go after um, your executive team. So or if you are an executive, you're going to be the target during a pen test potentially because you may have privileged access that other employees do not have. So uh, that attacker is looking for the privileged accounts because it's much easier to get in with a privileged account and you can run around and do all sorts of things immediately if they get in with a, a low-level user account that is restricted down that maybe it's an intern and that intern only has access to some intern systems but not even really any of your real systems it's a lot more work to go from that intern privilege level up to the privilege level they need to get into the cardholder data environment or the PII or PHI portion of the environment Right, and typically for, for us in a pen test, we're going to try our um, remote methods first uh, and then try our, our phishing attacks. Um, PCI has guidance that they've given for pen testers that the pen testers are supposed to follow, and part of that guidance is phishing attacks. So even if we're already in and we already have admin access, we're still going to run phishing attacks. And our typical turnaround on phishing attacks is we see the first clicks on those emails in the first five minutes. Um, and it's gotten a lot better. We, um, when we're when we use our generic phishing attacks, we're only hitting you know, only twenty percent of the people are clicking on those links. Um, when we go for more targeted attacks, uh, we're getting you know seventy, eighty percent um, that are that are clicking on the links in, in our emails and, and giving us usernames, passwords. Um, that we find much more often than people willing to run attachments. So I, I feel like you know we've done a good job of teaching people if something comes in as an attachment, don't double click it and run it. Um, but they're more than happy to click on a link in an email and go to a web page that looks just like their Microsoft Office login and give us their username and password. Yeah. And and those those emails will typically be something along the line. Maybe the folks that listen to this program are not going to fall for it when your company gets a pen test. But it might be something like it'll look like it comes from your IT help desk and it says, hey, we uh, 
actually just had a security incident. We're requiring everyone to log in and reset their username and password. And it's going to pop up a site that's going to look like a Microsoft password, username and password reset form. And you're going to go through and actually reset it and change yourself to a new fake password. It's not actually going to change your password on the system, but you just gave the attacker your current password and what you thought your next password would be. Yeah, I mean, what we're doing is we're taking um, emails that have actually been sent. So we'll take a Microsoft email. Um, you know, Microsoft releases new features for Office 365. So if we know that an organization uses Office 365, we'll take that latest Microsoft email, we'll make some changes to the URLs, and we'll send them to our page with something that has the same words that Microsoft uses, the same images, everything looks exactly like that. So even for experienced people looking at those emails, um, they're not, it, it, it's not bad spelling, it's not, it looks exactly like it's supposed to look. Um, and you're gonna have to look at the headers or look at the specific links um, to, to know the difference. And we, you know, this is what we do full time. So we have all sorts of like typo domains and things like that that are already set up for some of these common uh, organizations. I won't tell you our office one, but we have a pretty good office one um, that even if you look at the URL, you have to look at it twice before you're like, wait, wait, that looks a little bit off. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, those types of attacks, I mean, it's like you said, the, 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 the defenders have to get it right every single time. Right. And the attackers only have to get it right once. Yeah. Um, so if you want to learn more about uh, penetration testing, uh, there's uh, lots of good information on uh, the sans.org website, S-A-N-S dot O-R-G. Um, on there, you can learn about uh, the OWASP uh, top 10. These are um, some remote threats that you should be patching, and you should have those knocked out um, long before the penetration testers show up at the works. If you have any of the top 10, they're going to be in before launch on day one. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So... Thank you, Ray, for joining us on CyberTalk Radio this week. Thank you for having me.